The Danny Mac Show with BK. Podcast powered by I Promise. Now, here's Danny Mac with BK. 2-0. Broken bat right back to the pitcher. Oh, and he threw it away. Badu's going to score. Mazzara to second. Go to third. Maybe to third. He will dig for third. The throw is offline, and he's in there with a head first slide. Where you want it. That one is hammered. Deep left center field. Gone. Oh, oh, man. Little question about that one, Shep. That ball was pulverized. The wheels came off in the fourth inning. That was all the start of a six-run fourth inning against Johan Oviedo, and the Cardinals eventually lose that ball game by the final of 8-2. to two. It's the Danny Mac Show on a Wednesday morning. Sunshine and lollipops. Way to start this one, Tanner. Uh, that's Tanner. I'm Dan, and that's BK. Brandon Kylie, Danny Mac Show. Wednesday, we've got day baseball coming up on Bally Sports. It'll be game two, the Cardinals and the Tigers from Comerica Park as the Cardinals wrap up their road trip and wrap up the series with Detroit. That was ugly. It started out okay. Oviedo, you thought, looked pretty good early on. And then you saw the air. Then you saw back-to-back walks. Then you saw bases loaded 0-2 to the ninth-place hitter and the double down the line. That was Rodgers. Then you saw the three-run bomb, and then you saw the wheels come off, and then you saw the loss. BK, good morning to you. Good morning, Dan. It's great to be here with you today. Sunshine and lollipops. Um, Listen, if you're looking for some sort of silver lining for the Cardinals coming from last night, I am not the guy to come to. I understand. I get it. um, I would love to be able to come on here today. Honestly, I would love nothing more than to say, oh, there is... This is why Cardinals fans should believe that things are about to get back on track. Don't really have that nugget for you right now. I wish I did. Lars Newtbar could have been that thing. Yesterday, we started the show with sunshines and lollipops. Maybe Lars Newtbar is the ball of energy that this team needed. And he did have a sack fly. He had an RBI in his first game back or first game up with the Cardinals. But this team, I was listening to Adam Wainwright on with the morning show earlier today. It just feels like there's something missing. There's something oh, yeah. they're they're waiting for that moment to take place for them and it should happen in this stretch of games. Now that you've got the Tigers and the Pirates and the Diamondbacks and the Rockies, this is where you should have that happen for you. Even if it's not of your creating, these bad teams find ways to lose. And you've got to allow them to do that. Last night, the Cardinals didn't put enough pressure on them to have that happen. You're you're right. And it's turned into a really bad month. Actually, historically bad in doing some of the numbers right now. The Cardinals here in the month of June, BK, are 6-13. This is their 10th worst winning percentage all time in the month of June. So we're talking over 100 years of Cardinals baseball. The runs per game. And this is where I'm going to go because... Oviedo is Oviedo. He's 23 years old. He was forced into the situation last year because of COVID. He's forced into this situation because Miles Michaelis is out. Uh, Jack Flaherty is out. KK had missed time. So this is the guy that gets the call up and has been asked to uh, fill in this rotation. So you're going to have your ups and downs with Oviedo. He needs to get a win. Uh, Once he gets a win under his belt, I think some of the pressure is off. But he hasn't. Now I'm going to focus on the offense. Right now, 2.95 runs per game. That's 30th in baseball. That's the worst. 2.95 runs per game. That's the fifth worst run uh, in terms of generating runs that the Cardinals have ever had in June. 
It's the worst since 1966. Uh, The starting pitching, the ERA is over six. It's 26th right now in the month of June in baseball, and it's the fifth worst June the club has had. It's the worst since 2006. It feels like 06. It feels like 06, so I'm going to draw positive. 06, yeah, Tanner just perked up. Yeah, Tanner uh, just awoke from his slumber. That's we right, Tanner. We won it all then. That's right, Tanner. That's right. Good job, young man. They won the World Series that year. Tanner yeah. was in diapers, but he remembers it. That's okay. You know, Tanner was uh, sleeping back then in a nap, too, and now he's napping right now. Tanner, wake the hell up, okay? They won the World Series that year. I remember doing the games that year, and, man, there were some rough stretches, and this is eerily similar to those rough stretches. I'm not saying this team is winning the World Series, so don't get me wrong. I'm just saying it has that feel of those tough stretches and right now, the Cardinals are in a bad stretch. And how do you get out of it? Uh, I look at guys like Tommy Edmond, Yadier Molina, Nolan Arenado. You look at their OPS. I kind of did a deep dive on where they were at the beginning of the season to where they are now. It has been a precipitous dive with OPS with them. Goldschmidt has been okay the last week. His what last week has been fine. The home run rate collectively with this team has taken a deep dive. The month of April is about 50%. You know, in terms of their home run rate and scoring runs, it's at 30% here in the month of June. So they're not hitting for power. So you look at the offense right now. Where is it? What was it, five or six hits last night against Scooble, who I thought was good? And Jimmy made a great point on the games last night, Jim Edmonds. He was actually tougher on the righties. And this year, his his track record has been he's much tougher on righties than he is lefties because he's able to crossfire and get in. And he was on the righties last night. But here's the bottom line, BK. Where's the improvement with the offense? We're not seeing it. And when you're seeing your big guys going south, you have to ask the question, why is that happening? Why? Why are guys that are normally have really good track records going the wrong way? And and that needs to be a question that has to be answered. It does. And if you look at the home runs, because early on in the season, what were we talking about? It was the hard hit rate. It was the exit velocity. It was the home runs. It was the extra bases. I remember having a conversation with Tanner in, I think it was like mid-May, so probably about a month ago now, about how this is the offense that Jeff Albert told us that we were going to see. It's the offense that he said for so long, hey, these are the things that we're focusing on. Well, now you look at all those metrics, and they've started to slag back a little bit. Now they are in the bottom third of the league in all of those advanced numbers. If you just look specifically at home runs, you just want to look at the counting stats, that's perfectly fine, too. For the month of June, they are tied with the Arizona Diamondbacks for the fewest home runs in the league. This is not a team that can win that way. This is not a small ball type of a team. They've got some players that can do those things. But overall, you have Nolan Arenado and Tyler O'Neill and Paul Goldschmidt and Yadier Molina, who at the beginning of the season went for broke. He was striking out more, walking less, but hitting more extra bases. The way that this team is going to win is the way that a lot of teams in baseball in 2021 are winning, and that's by the long ball. And they have not done that. So when you ask what happened to the offense, well, what happened to the offense is the one way that they were producing the vast majority of their runs, it was over 50% at one point, was with the home runs. Right, and it's and just not, not there. they're not doing that anymore. No, and last night, so it was six hits, nine left on, one for five with runners in scoring position, and they scored two runs. When I see nine left on, I'm also talking about coming through with a timely hit. Yep. So you're not getting that. And if you get that timely hit, many times that breaks open a game. 
Detroit had that. The Cardinals didn't. When you had Rodgers come up, who's not a, a guy that you're looking at for offense from the Tigers' side of things, and he gets an 0-2 pitch, and a young pitcher, it's 23 in Oviedo, hangs an 0-2 breaking ball, and he bangs it, that's a timely hit. That comes from someone you're not expecting it. Now, all of a sudden, the mindset and the feel of that game changes. And here's the other thing, BK, when the Cardinals fall behind, and I need to do some numbers, how many times have they fallen behind in a game where you just feel, and I I don't know what, I can't quantify because I haven't looked up the numbers, but I just know how I feel as a guy doing the games, and I watch every inning, and, and you do too, where they fall behind and you go, boy, I just know, though, that this team is going to come back. I just don't have that feeling right now because the offense isn't at the level that it needs to be. It just isn't. And so it's a real fine line of their season right now where they're at where they've got to generate some offense and try to score early because that's the way things are going right now. It's not like you're winning a bunch of games. They're on thin ice to where they've got to score and score often and early to try to set the tone in a game and let everybody relax. And they're just not doing that. I think the feel is two-pronged. There's, on one part, it's the personnel that you're then going to deploy because you're behind. So when the Cardinals get behind, now you're going to the less advantageous relievers, right? So instead of going the Cabrera, Reyes, Gallegos route, now you're going with Ponce and Andrew Miller, and you have less confidence in those relievers to keep it where it was whenever they entered the game. The other thing is the offense just as a whole. You don't have confidence that if they're down 4-2, to they're going to be able to score three runs maybe in the next three innings because they haven't shown the ability to score three runs over nine innings consistently this month. So I think it's both of those things. It's the pitching that you're then going to deploy, and it's the offense that's been underperforming all season long. It's deserved. It's deserved that in the fifth inning when you're down by six runs you don't feel like this team's going to be able to make a comeback the way that some others around baseball do and that's what's so frustrating Dan is against the Tigers you should have that feeling I know that's a very difficult lead to be able to come back from I get that completely but there should have been a feeling in the pit of most Cardinals fan stomachs that hey because of the opponent not because even how strong our belief is in the Cardinals there's a way we can manage to get back into this game. There should have been that belief, and there wasn't last night. So last night, Oviedo failed to escape the fourth inning and in an inning that saw him give up four hits, a couple of walks. There was the air that was self-induced, the six runs. Mike Schilt, if, uh, if Oviedo makes that play at third, is it a different game? Did you see confidence lost after that error? Yeah, potentially. I mean, you know, this is, this is why, you know, we get an opportunity to have him get experience, right? to be able to go and slow something down. Yeah, it's, it's very possible. Uh, he did right his ship. You know, he punched out Grossman. He's got the open base to, to shoot and um, got down the count and um, didn't get a slider where he wanted to. Got, he got punished for it. Yeah, he did. And you could just see after that, at least in my mind, the first three innings, BK, I saw the aggressive Johan Oviedo. And they have tried to convince him that when you throw strikes with all your pitches – you're getting soft contact. You're getting swings and misses, even with reduced velocity. So if you reduce your velocity for location, your stuff is going to play. And all of a sudden, he st- he went back to what we saw like this starting in San Diego, where he walked five and whatever it was, two or three innings, where he's just kind of picking. He doesn't need to do that. And that's something that you're going to get with the growing pains of a young pitcher, and we saw that last night. Remember Lance Lynn at the beginning of his career? Yep. There was the Lennings that people would talk so much about where it's just like it's it blows up. He, he's great. 
And then suddenly you get to the fifth inning, and it's like, oh, they scored five runs? I don't even understand how this just happened. It feels like that's what's happening right now with Johan Oviedo, where one thing goes wrong, and then it just kind of is an implosion from there. And that doesn't mean that he's not going to be a successful pitcher. I think he still can be. I still believe in the talent. I still believe in the acumen. But those are the things that a pitcher of his caliber right now, of his age, would typically be working on in the minors. And we're watching it happen against professionals on the other side, major leaguers. And that's what's been so difficult for me is I I hope they're not, at the expense of his development, having to utilize him at the big league level right now. I hope he's able to work through these things. Yeah, you don't want a guy to get buried. And he hasn't had a major league win. And that's one of the things that, you know, all of a sudden you look up, it's 14 15 starts, 16, and you go, oh my gosh, is it is it ever going to happen? You'd never want a kid to get buried, and that's to your point. We did see the debut, as you mentioned, of Lars Newpar. I thought it was fine. Uh, got the, the, the sack fly in his Major League debut, so that's under his belt. His first at bat stung the ball right to second. 108 miles per hour. Yeah, and hit the ball hard all every time he was up, so it, that was fine. DeYoung got on base three times. Maybe something to build on. Couple of walks. I'll take it. Little bloop into center. Hey, look, I'm I'm trying to find positives here. That's something maybe to build on. And today it's John Gant on the mound. It's a day game today. I'll be fascinated to see what Mike Schilt rolls out there. Um you you only can roll out if you're the manager what you have in your tool shed, right? What you got in the toolbox. These are the guys he's got. Do you shake it up? Do you give it one mm. more day and then you come home and you say, "Okay, guys, we we've we've come to this point because here's the thing. You're in a bad division, essentially. You're in a division where Milwaukee goes 13 to 17 losses, 13 to 17 wins. They win 5, they lose 5. Chicago gets beat at home by Miami, they win. I, it, no one's running away with this thing. It's not a lost cause yet. And if you're the Cardinals, you're saying Flaherty's coming back at some point. You're hopeful for Mike. I mean, all those things that we talk about. So you're only four and a half out with a lot of games to play. Um, but to the big point, what can you do to get the offense going? And that's the thing that Mike Schilt has to answer going into this game today. That's what you got to do. It is. Um, the problem is, what do you do to shake it up? I, I, that's, my, that's my question. Do you put it in, come in and throw him in a hat? <laughs> Take no no BP guys. Don't show up to the ballpark tomorrow till six. I don't care. I mean, but you're gonna have to do something. I think you do. Uh, but also, the tough part is you're playing the Tigers. You gotta win one out of two. Yeah. And so I want to shake it up. I want to see that. But also, like Yadier Molina, I kind of want to be in the lineup today. I know For it was sure. a night game going into a day game, and most times, more often than not, I would say give him the day off. I kind of think he needs to be out there today. Nolan Arenado has to be in the lineup. Same thing for Goldie. You had Tyler O'Neill yesterday as a DH. Tonight he needs to be out there in left field. And you had Saturday off and you had Monday off. Yeah, they they need the regulars out there tonight, or today rather, I would think. It's a tough spot for Mike Schilt, man. I, I do not envy the spot he's in right now because now you're getting into the territory of we got to start racking up wins because these are bad teams. And so as much as you, me, Tanner, anybody listening right now is like, shake it up, please just shake up the lineup. He's like, yeah, but I think this lineup gives me the best chance to win and yep. we need to win right now. I, it's tough. It's tough. Later in the show, we we are now seeing a couple of nights in uh, Major League Baseball with the sticky substance. We saw it here locally last night for the first time, so we're going to get into that. There was a lot of things that happened in baseball. We'll get into that later in the show, which I find fascinating, especially with 
Sergio Romo, Max Scherzer, some of the others. We saw a great Major League debut with Wander Franco, the number one prospect in baseball. And I don't, I don't know about you, we hope to connect with Lance Parrish coming up next. Longtime Major League catcher, uh, I think he was like an eight- or nine-year All-Star, but he won the World Series in 1984 with the uh, Detroit Tigers. He's an special assistant with the Tigers this guy is uh, does not get enough credit for just how good of a catcher he was in the major leagues. So we're going to visit with Lance Parrish, one of the great catchers in recent major league history, and that's uh, coming up next. It's a great guest, and uh, hopefully you'll sit back and enjoy that, and we'll be able to connect with him. Hopefully, fingers crossed, coming up next. This is the Danny Mac Show with BK, the podcast powered by I Promise. Renicky off the bag at first. The pitch, he swings on this, a fly ball to left. Here comes Herndon, he's there, he's got it. The Tigers are the champions of 1984. They race on the field to Bob Hernandez. The Tigers have won the World Series. They are the champions of the world in 1984. Really a pleasure to have the chance to visit with one of the great catchers in baseball and does not get enough credit because, listen to this resume, 19-year Major League Baseball career, 10 years in Detroit, eight-time All-Star, three gold gloves, six silver sluggers. He was a part of the championship club in 1984 and now a special assistant to the Tigers general manager in Detroit, the Cardinals in Detroit, and it's great to have the chance to visit with Lance Parrish. Hey, Lance, thanks for hopping on with us. We really appreciate it. How are you? I'm doing great. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, tell us about your role right now. Before I get into your play, uh, playing career, and we're seeing the Cardinals face Detroit in interleague play, but uh, what you're doing right now with the game today? Well, my official title is I'm a special assistant to the general manager, which would be Al Avila. Um, for six years, I was managing in the Tiger minor league uh, system, and uh, last year I was switched over to becoming a special assistant, although we had no minor league season, as everybody knows. So <laughs> I basically didn't do a whole lot. Um, this year is a little different. I was down in spring training with uh, the minor league camp. Uh, you know, it's still kind of touch and go with a lot of teams, especially at that time as to who was allowed to be in spring training and who wasn't. So I was able to go down and watch the minor league guys. And uh, basically my job is to just – uh, observe, to uh, do a little teaching, to do whatever Al basically wants me to do, but uh, I'll go around to the different clubs and, and watch our guys and see who stands out and who's struggling a little bit and uh, file a report every now and then and you know, kind of throw my two cents in uh, as far as uh, teaching goes uh, when the opportunity presents itself. Lance, what's the biggest difference in development for young players now compared to development when you were coming up in the the eighties, the seventies? What's the biggest difference for you? Uh, you know, I'll be honest with you. When I came up, there was uh, nowhere near the amount of instruction um, that there is now. Um, you know, I, I remember when I first started playing professional baseball, we had a manager. Uh, in some cases, we had a pitching coach, and if we didn't have a pitching coach, we had a, a regular coach uh, at whatever level and a trainer, and that was it. We had no rovers. We had nothing like that. So, uh, you know, every level that I was at, it was a manager and a coach, usually a pitching coach and a trainer, where nowadays they've got, 
you know, who knows how many coaches on staff, and they've got a whole uh, corral full of rovers that go from one place to the next. And, you know, there's just so much instruction, so much uh, so much information, uh, especially with, uh, you know, the whole uh, advent of uh, analytics and um, all the information that that provides. Uh, it's just a lot of a lot of information to try to digest and, and put into play on the field. I think it's really fascinating when you get a college catcher that makes the transition going to pro ball because many times, if not all the time, uh, the coaches are the ones calling the pitch selection for the catcher. So they'll look into the dugout, as you know, Lance, and then get the sign and relay it to the pitcher. And then it becomes a relationship in the pro game that the the pitcher and the catcher have to have. Now, it's not to say they don't have that great information, but you were a guy that would get after it with your pitching staff, and that was clear. Um, do you see that as a tough transition for catchers in the in the minor leagues, making that jump from either high school or college, trying to learn how to call the game? You know, I haven't seen it so much, to be honest with you. I know that that's what they do at the uh, high school and college level. A lot of information being passed on from the dugout to the guys behind the plate and, and out on the field. Uh, but, uh, you know, catchers seem to be able to uh, – make that transition from whether it be high school or college ball into professional baseball. And there's still a lot of things that they have to know, you know, at, at the professional level as well. I mean, things have come a long way. Um, like I said, with analytics and, you know, defensive alignments and how they want to pitch guys and they've got cards as well that they look at. Um, that's something that I still am trying to get used to. It's uh, Every time somebody goes up to the plate, everybody pulls their card out to find out <laughs> where they're going to play them and how to pitch them. And, you know, so, you know, from that perspective, there's, there's still a lot going on. But the transition part of it, they don't seem to have, or that, uh, not that I've noticed, that they've had a difficult time adjusting to that. And we've sure. got some pretty smart guys in our system that have adapted pretty well, so. Lance, one of the guys that's revered here in St. Louis for his baseball acumen is Whitey Herzog, and you played for another pretty darn good one in Sparky Anderson. Can you tell us maybe some of the biggest baseball lessons that you've learned from Sparky that you still pass on to some of those young players that you work with today? Well, you know, it's uh, it's funny that you say that because, you know, the guys that I've that I've played with in Detroit, especially on that world championship team, um, you know, we still run into each other from time to time. I work work with Gibby, Tram, Jack Morris, uh, a lot of guys, and uh, and I've listened to them speak on occasion at, at different functions, different events, and inevitably they'll always come out with a Sparky Anderson story. Um, I think that he left his blueprint on on all of us that uh, uh, he made a, a big impression on all of us, and then the way that he went about things when he took over our ball club, when we were all very young and uh, basically just starting out at the major league level, you know, number one, he let everybody know who the boss was. And I think at that particular time in the game, you know, he had quite a bit more authority than probably a lot of managers do. I'm sure Whitey did as well when he was with the Cardinals, but uh, you know, things are a little different now. Not to say that they don't have the authority, but Sparky seemingly had the power to, you know, keep you on board or make you disappear if he wanted you to disappear. And uh, he let everybody know that, you know, as everybody always likes to tell the story of Sparky, uh, you know, referring to when he'd go home and he had a garden that he used to 
take care of. And, you know, he loved his plants. He loved his vegetables that he grew and all that. And he would say, uh, you know, and as long as everything was going well in the garden, I was happy because every once in a while a weed would pop up. And I'd walk over and pluck that weed right out of the garden. <laughs> Same with players, I guess. Same with Same players. Same with players. So I'm sure everybody caught on to that one pretty quick. Absolutely. Lance Parrish is our guest and one of the great uh, catchers in baseball history and many years with the Detroit Tigers, Cardinals in Detroit, and we thought this would be a great time to catch up with Lance Parrish. You mentioned Tram, and that's Alan Trammell. What did it mean to guys like you and others that played a long time with Alan Trammell to finally see him get his due in the Hall of Fame? Well, you know, obviously, first and foremost, we're all very excited for him. Um, I don't think there's anybody on this planet that loves baseball more than Alan Trammell. And, um, you know, just from the very beginning of his career coming over and, you know, being around him as much as I was and uh, just watching him pour his heart and soul into the game. And, you know, it's funny, I always would make fun of him because uh, he never really seemingly knew what was going on in the world news-wise or current events or anything else. But you could ask him anything about sports, and he knew the answer to every question <laughs> that you threw out there. knew everything about baseball, knew everything about basketball. Um, just, a, you know, a, kind of a sports junkie. But, you know, he, he loves, you know, he loved baseball and uh, worked very, very hard. And watching him develop and watching him turn himself into the player that he became the major league level and the consistency in which he did it. I mean, he was very steady year in and year out, big contributor offensively and defensively, great teammate. So when, you know, the day came for him to, uh, you know, be informed that he was voted into the Hall of Fame, I think all of us, you know, got a big smile on our face because not only did we feel like he deserved it, but we felt, you know, that he, uh, you know, that he had earned it. Absolutely. And, uh, he was finally getting his recognition, so it was great. Um, Lance, I- I'm curious if you have seen much of Yadier Molina because we talk about it all the time. I- I've done the games for almost 25 years, so I've done all his games primarily probably 95 you know, to 100% of his games. And I say it all the time. We're watching a future Hall of Famer. Um, and for a while, it was like some people were kind of on the fence. And then he hit two, He got to 2,000 hits because he was always known for his defense, nine-time gold glover, so on and so forth. Um, so I'm curious if you've seen him much, and what's your takeaway in watching Yadier Molina? Well, you know, unfortunately, the only times I get to see him is you know, when they're on TV. Sure. So, um, but, you know, that being said, I have always been a big fan of Yadier's. I think uh, – he is the gold standard for catching in baseball today and has been for some time. I think that most of your young catchers that uh, get into professional baseball and make it to the major league level, he's the guy that they look to. Um, you know, whether they have a chance to talk to him or just watch him like I do on TV and, and, and video and just try to pattern themselves after how he goes about his job. I mean, he's very solid. And, and for me, everything that he does, he's, very fundamentally sound. He's a great leader. I mean, I appreciate that probably more than anything. I mean, he he's not afraid to mix it up with anybody, and he's not afraid to get in anybody's face. And and I think that that is a, a great quality for a catcher to have, you know. And and he's come on strong offensively. So, yeah, for me, he's a Hall of Famer, no question about it. And uh, again, you know, in my opinion, he is the gold standard for catching in today's game.
Lance, there's only 19 catchers in the Hall of Fame right now. Do you think that's a position that's a little underrepresented? I think it's a, a position that's misunderstood by the people voting. It's not that easy to be a catcher, and I'm not saying that because I was was a catcher, but you know, there's a there's a lot that goes into that position. You know, everybody might look at the numbers uh, only, but uh, you know. As Yadier can tell you or anybody else that's caught for any length of time, you just get beat up all the time. You know, you're constantly wearing some kind of an injury, um, whether it be your hands or your knees or your uh, arms or whatever. Um, and, and you know, I, I never really paid attention to it when I was playing, to be honest with you. But, you know, since I got out of the game, really started to notice uh, a lot of the the concussion injuries that a lot of catchers have had and the effect that that's had on their career. You know, Mike Matheny being one of them. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I know that that had an effect on his career. So, and I've seen some catchers that, you know, were, were catchers for quite a long time. And um, after they got out of the game for some period of time, they started having, you could start to see the effects of it. So, you know, it's a difficult position to play. And uh, I take my hat off to everybody that has, made the Hall of Fame and, and earned the respect of the people voting because, uh, you know, like I say, there's a lot that goes into it, and you have to be pretty dang good to be productive offensively and defensively. No question about it. My, my final question for you, Lance, as you're going up and down and roving a bit, I'm not sure if you have been to rookie ball, but as you probably know, they're incorporating the electronic strike zone. And so everybody talks about what an electronic strike zone would mean for, and it's, obvious for the pitcher and the batter but what about the catcher and a guy that can work an umpire a little bit or has that relationship with him or is good at pitch framing and can you know steal your strike or two do you think that's going to have an effect on how we look sometimes at defensive catchers moving forward if it gets implemented well i'll be honest with you i don't see how it could uh how any catcher could change what an electronic strike zone is going to call. Yeah. You can be the best framer on the planet, but you know, the, the electronic strike zone is the one that, you know, has to say at the end of the, at the end of the pitch, whether it's a ball or a strike. And I think once the ball's beyond the strike zone and you frame it, um, it's already determined it's a ball or a strike. So, you know, that being said, uh, I, I don't think that that's going to come into play as much as it might now. Uh, with the catcher's ability to maybe make a pitch look a little bit better than it was or, um, you know, steal a strike here and there. But, you know, relationship with an umpire, you know, really what good would it do you to work the umpire because he's calling what he's told to call with that little bug in his ear once they call it a ball or a strike. So it's taking a little bit of the human element out of the game. I hope that it doesn't make it to the major league level because I think that's an integral part of baseball. I think it's, you know, Baseball history, having a relationship between a pitcher and a catcher and, you know, like you say, having the lines of communication open and being able to, you know, work your trade a little bit as far as framing goes. And and I think that's good for catchers to be able to focus in on that. So uh, how far it goes, I don't know. Um, You know, uh, it's an interesting, uh, I guess, dynamic in the game today. But um, to be honest with you, I – I'll say at this time, I don't see it making it to the major league level. Lance, we'll get, we'll you, out. 
We'll yeah. get you out of here on this. Um, the biggest story in the sport right now is Major League Baseball now policing the rule that's been on the books for a while, but that they hadn't been policing in the <laughs> past, which is the foreign substances that pitchers have been using. And uh, we always think about it from the pitcher's perspective, but catchers are the other p- position player that typically touches the ball on every play. What were your thoughts whenever you first heard about baseball deciding to go this route? And has it changed at all? Have your thoughts evolved at all as you've learned more about the way that they're going to uh, plan to police this? Uh, well, you know, I know that there was always the, you know, opportunity for a pitcher if he, he couldn't get a grip on the baseball to use a rosin bag. Does that always work? Probably not as well as they would like it to work. Um, so they've, uh, constantly gone to, to other means. Um, I think it's uh, uh, probably a good good thing for Major League Baseball to set things straight. I think they've probably been better off doing it during the offseason than doing it right in the middle of the season. But, you know, rules are rules. You know, you, there's stuff that you can use. There's stuff that you can't use. If the Major League uh, Baseball Players Association wants to, to go in there and battle for the right to use different substances, then there's a time and a place for that. I think it's really a good idea to do it in the regular season where somebody's used to, you know, using a particular substance and it's seemingly been all right up to that point, and then all of a sudden they just pull the carpet out from everybody and say, you know, now you're not allowed to use anything. So um, I'm sure it'll work itself out. I know there's a lot of guys that aren't happy with uh, the way things that have, that, uh, have been kind of laid out there right now, but uh, I hope they get to a point where they they just, you know, basically have a list of things that you are allowed to use and a list of things that, and everything else, I guess, is, is illegal. And whether it's on the catcher's glove or pitcher's glove or on his hat or wherever else, you know, if it's legal, it's legal. And if it's not on the legal list, then it's illegal and you're not allowed to use it. And obviously there will be a consequence if you do use it. Hey, Lance, this has been uh, great to catch up with you. It's uh, awesome to hear your perspective of things, a guy that spent so much time in baseball and one of the great catchers that uh, baseball has seen and a world champion from 1984. Thank you so much for doing this, and uh, hopefully we'll catch up down the line very soon. Well, thank you guys for having me. It was my pleasure. Have a great day. You too. That's uh, Lance Parrish, uh, really one of the underrated catchers uh, of his era. He was fantastic. I mean, he was a really good player, really good. And I think he was kind on himself when he said, well, the relationships you have with a pitcher, he would flat out get after guys, man. And I kind of love that, you know, as a leader and a guy that that watches Yachty get after it, he's in the thick of things. I've seen a bunch of his games I mentioned. You've watched a bunch. Uh, Lance Parrish is kind of old school, and and it's fun to hear those guys. I also love hearing guys from yesteryear that are willing to look at the guys that are playing now and say, yeah, that guy's the gold standard. And him saying that about Yachty or Molina carries some weight for me. And I do think one – Right now, there is a legitimate debate that will be taking place between all of the media whenever Yadier Molina is up for the Hall of Fame, right? I think when you start hearing former catchers like That could Lance, be like 10 years from now because he'll keep playing. Uh, sure. <laughs> That's fair. Um, when you start hearing more and more of the former catchers such as Lance come out and say things like this, it's going to be harder and harder for people on the negative side of things to continue to say, That's yeah, point. he's not a Hall of Famer when his peers are saying, no, 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 no. 
that guy's a Hall of Famer. There's no doubt about it. Cardinals Magazine, I don't know if you saw the article. I've, I've mentioned it a couple of times in promoting the magazine on the games on, uh, on, on television, but they have a quote from Johnny Bench, and he says, oh, yeah, Yachty, first ballot Hall of Famer, no doubt. You know, I'm paraphrasing, sure. but he says that. And when you have that guy come out and say it, and guys like Lance Parrish, I'm sure Mike Matheny will say it. Tony LaRusa obviously is going to say it. That that lends itself um, credibility. I always find it interesting. He said something that uh, I, I it makes me think of Tim McCarver. I, you know, I love Tim McCarver. So when Tim and I were doing games, uh, he he opened my eyes up to a lot of things. But when he talked about catchers, he said, "Your hands are your tools." And I, I never thought of it that way. And he's like, just imagine grabbing a bat when your hands are never 100% and you're trying to hit. It's hard enough to hit when you're a regular player and a position player. Granted, right? Everybody knows it's hard to hit a baseball. He said, when your hands are getting pounded every single time, so a sinker comes in, ooh, you, you jam your thumb. You take that foul tip off the tip of your finger and it goes numb. One time, Tim, you know, I looked at his hands. They're all The fingers are going every which way direction. And imagine that guys get over 2,000 hits by not being able to essentially, BK, hold the bat properly sometimes. Yeah. You know, that's part of what I think that Lance is talking about. Where And I think your point is 100% right. Only 19 guys that are in the Hall of Fame, you need to look at that position way differently, way differently than you evaluate other people. It's not just, well, he got to 2,000 or 25 or 3,000 or this many runs batted in, home runs, Zopia. No, you need to look at the body of work because he's involved in every play and he's getting dinged up every play too. And it's hard. And that's where I do have a little bit of sympathy for the voters is there's no number number that you can look at. Like right now we can look at Scott Rowland and you can start saying, oh, all of these new age numbers, like they all say, hey, not only was he amazing defensively, and we knew that while we were watching him, offensively, we probably underrated him a little bit for what he actually brought to the table. There's nothing like that for catchers. No. The defensive metrics are still way behind what we have offensively, and in a lot of ways, they're completely unreliable. Like If you look right now at baseball's defensive metrics so far this year, the people that actually understand this way more than I certainly do would tell you there's not enough of a sample size yet. Dan, we're more than a third of the way through the season. If there's not enough of a sample size, then what are we actually measuring here defensively, right? I agree. Like, I can tell you that a guy that's hitting 300 is having a good offensive season. I can't tell you, based on the metrics, based on my eyes I can, but based on the metrics, who is and who is not having a good defensive season yet. And there is no position that is hurt by that more than catchers because so much of their value is brought both defensively and pitch calling and how they work with the pitchers, all of those different things that are completely unquantifiable. And those are the things that make Yadier Molina one of the best. So I'll I'll wrap up this segment as we're talking catching about Ted Simmons, who deservedly is going to the Hall of Fame. So to your point, uh, I can tell you how many games Ted Simmons played in a season and it was something like, and I have the, the notes, uh, I could dig them up here real quickly, but I would always make this point in talking about it prior to him going to the Hall of Fame. I always said he's a Hall of Famer. Always. Switch hitter, great offensive player. Um, you know, you, you the defense, you could argue back and forth. But durability, man, think about this. Think about catching in the heat of the summers in St. Louis on turf. Now think about that. And he was catching 150-plus games for like seven or eight straight years in a row. So I can tell you that he did that. But then you have to put it into context. The heat of the summer on turf with bad teams. 
that is something that you have to keep in mind and still was able to somehow stay fresh enough to put up the numbers that he did. And and that's part of what I think we're we're both in agreement with here. Absolutely. It's amazing. What what he accomplished is unbelievable and what we're watching with Yadier Molina and the fact that he's doing it now at such an advanced age I think continues to add that's to his part. resume. Uh, the longevity is ultimately going to be even for the people that were once naysayers, going to be what even wins them over. And Sunday, game one, he just passed Johnny Bench for hits by a primary Not catcher. Bad. Not bad at all. That's BK. I'm Danny Mack, and this is 101 ESPN. This is the Danny Mac Show with BK, the podcast powered by I Promise. Back on the Danny Mac Show. Boy, that was fun to visit with Lance Parrish. And, of course, it's always great to hear the updates with Tanner. Tanner does Amazing updates. He takes great pride in those updates. So Tanner, nicely done. Uh, nicely done getting Lance Parrish. That was great insight into Yadier Molina and also what's happening in the minor leagues and just the role of a catcher. So uh, really enjoyed that visit with Lance Parrish. Let's continue. That's BK, Brandon Kiley. I'm Dan McLaughlin. We do this every day at 10 o'clock, kind of reviewing what's happening with Major League Baseball and the St. Louis Cardinals. And really, the, the biggest story for me, BK, in baseball, undoubtedly, and I don't think it's any surprise to anybody that follows the game, is, is what's happening with foreign substances with pitchers. So we saw it last night. So if you're watching the game, Johan Oviedo came off the mound. Joe West was the crew chief. So what's happening here is that the home plate umpire is with the crew chief. It just happened to be that the crew chief last night was Joe West and the home plate umpire. He was the the dual role, if you will. And they come off the mound, the pitcher does. They check the hat, they check the belt, they'll check the sleeve, uh, the glove. And last night in the Phillies and Nationals games, it was Max Scherzer who was on the mound for the Nationals. Try to throw somebody off their game and Davey rightfully coming out to protect his guy to see what's going on here. Max Max drops his hat and uh, Carlos Torres is going to get mad at him. This is in the middle of an inning after you struck a guy out. And it was initiated by the other manager. Bob Davey, I'm not standing for this at all. And now Girardi's going to come out and become a bigger part of it. Scherzer as the inning ended, gazing over toward the Phillies dugout. Didn't say anything, just looked. And then Joe Girardi came up and said, come on over. Firing everybody up. And he was ejected from the ball game. So he was checked twice. He was checked uh, after the first inning, and then apparently Joe Girardi asked the umpires to check him again. Scherzer had the strikeout and then stared. It was about 30 to 35 seconds after the strikeout, walking off the mound to the dugout, just staring at Joe Girardi. Girardi then was ejected, going back and forth with Max Scherzer, and after the game, Joe was asked on why he was suspicious of Max. I've seen Max a long time, since 2010. Obviously, he's going to be a Hall of Famer. But I've never seen him wipe his head like he was doing tonight, ever. It was suspicious for me. He did it about four or five times. It was suspicious. I didn't mean to offend anyone. I just got to do what's right for our club. Uh-huh. The gamesmanship, BK, and uh, Mike Rizzo, the general manager of the Nationals, addressed that situation this morning. He was on 106.7 The Fan in Washington, D.C., and Mike Rizzo said of Joe Girardi, quote, it's embarrassing for him. It's embarrassing for the Phillies. Was he playing games? Of course he was. He's a con artist, end quote. Wow. 
That is an explosive comment and oh, yeah. about as explosive as you'll see from any front office person of one team speaking about an employee of another team in Joe Girardi, an employee, by the way, who is well-respected within baseball circles. This is, I, I have said all along, I am in favor of what baseball is doing by trying to cut down on these foreign substances that have become so prevalent within the game. Dan, after now watching a full full cycle of games last night, where all of the, basically the entire league was in action, this ain't the way to do it. No, um, I respect what baseball is trying to accomplish with this. This is a bleep show, and it looks bad every night seeing these sorts of things. I think it'll get better. I think pitchers will eventually be the same way that we go through TSA, and we're like, "This sucks. I hate doing this." But everybody's got to do it, so whatever. Let's just try to make the best of it as we go along here. I think that's what it's going to become for these pitchers. But God, this had to be annoying for a guy like Max Scherzer. He spoke about that after the game last night, and I don't know that a guy like him is going to get used to this. Freddie Peralta had his glove taken away in his start with the Brewers. It was kind of off color. I guess it was an older glove that he uses, so they took the glove right away before his first pitch. A couple things come to mind when I was watching last night. Why are you doing this before, or why aren't you doing this before the first inning? So why not just go out and check him before the inning starts? And I understand they're saying, well, maybe we see something during the inning that looks suspicious. I get that, but it it does not look good. Um, And there's got to be a better way. You know, baseball's got to come up with some type of baseball that is uniform, that everybody feels comfortable with. And then people would say, well, then pitchers go back to what they were doing. And yeah, you might be right about that, but I'm with you. It just does not look good for the sport. We saw Sergio Romo late last night on the West Coast. I don't know if you saw this. He comes off the mound. He literally pulled down his pants, threw his hat, threw his glove. You know, he's got, like, sliding pants on. He's essentially, like, long underwear. It's just crazy, man. It's just a bad look for the sport. It is. And, like, in the middle of the inning, too, it's one thing to have it after they come off of the mound or before they go out there. That's... That's not changing anything for us as viewers, although it is annoying for the pitchers, I, I would imagine. But when you got it in the middle of an inning, like they did with Max Scherzer, and it takes four or five minutes to get through that. The rhythm of it. So as much as we talk about the pace of play and all of this and the action within the game, that ain't helping things. And I know there were a lot of people on Twitter or on broadcast last night that were suggesting, hey, the way that you can get rid of this to make it better is maybe you go with the challenge scenario, right? Where if you if you ask them to be checked and there's nothing there, you lose your ability to do so the rest of the game. I could get behind something like that. I think there's some validity to it. The other thing, Dan, on guys coming off of the mound, one thing that I'm thinking of is like the playoffs, right? Where you've got an intense moment, pitcher gets a big-time strikeout, and they're running back to the dugout. Like you're going to lose some of that. No question. Some of the personality within the game. And does that matter? Maybe not, but those moments are memorable. The strut that you're going to get from a guy like Trevor Bauer coming off of the mound, or Jack Flaherty plays with a little bit of swagger when he comes off of the mound and gets a big strikeout. Adam Wainwright showing his emotion. I want to see stuff like that, more of it in the game, and I think this kind of neuters that. Great show today. Uh, Lance Parrish was awesome, so good job, Tanner. Tomorrow we're going to visit with a world champion from the 1982 Cardinals. It's Dave LaPointe, and you have your show coming up the next three hours. We do indeed, and we've got a good one for you guys. We've got Timothy Wallach, a former bench coach for the Marlins. He's going to join us at 1130. Willie Horton at 1215, and the 
the Voice of the Blues, Chris Kerber, will join us to talk about the big news for the Blues today. Carl Gunnarsson has announced his retirement. We'll talk with Kerbs about that, what it means for the Blues, and what he will most remember from Gunnarsson's career coming up at one thirty. All right, great show, guys, and uh, thanks for everybody for tuning in every day at 10 o'clock here on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to The Danny Mac Show with BK, the podcast powered by I Promise.